Welcome to Season 2 of the Rooted in Relationships podcast, where we talk with renowned researchers and experts about the scientific insights that can help you build meaningful relationships with young people. I'm Ben Holtberg, CEO of Search Institute, where our own research has found relationships to be the roots all young people need to grow and thrive. During our first season, we focused on the power of relationships that enable young people to shape their own lives and make an impact on their communities. This season, I'm pleased to share that we are featuring interviews conducted by educational leader and former Search Institute CEO, Kent Pickell. Throughout this season, we will explore how connections to resources, relationships, and social networks provide the key conditions that all young people need to thrive. We will consider how culture, class, family, childhood education, and other factors influence relationship building. On this episode of Rooted in Relationships, we talk with the great Karen Pittman. Karen Pittman is a pioneer in positive youth development. She has a career of starting organizations and initiatives that promote youth development, including the Forum for Youth Investment. And she's now a partner at KP Catalysts. Karen discusses how scaling relationship building among students and educators can lead to increased learning and student success. You don't wanna miss this episode. Thanks for joining us this week on the Rooted in Relationships podcast. I am so excited this week to have Karen Pittman with me. Karen's now a senior fellow at the Forum for Youth Investment, but she was previously the co-founder and president and CEO. The Forum is a fascinating and I would say invaluable organization in sort of the landscape of American education and youth development. It's it's a nonprofit. It's nonpartisan. It really is not a think tank. It's like an action tank. They combine thought leadership, especially around youth development, youth policy. They've been uh, pioneers in sort of doing cross-sector collaboration before cross-sector collaboration was a thing. And they've always had this really deep commitment to on-the-ground support for people who work in out-of-school time programs and community collaboratives and juvenile justice and child welfare and, of course, schools as well. Karen's a sociologist. She's widely published. She's been heard and engaged. And so, Karen, thank you so much for joining us here. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. So just to start out a little bit on a personal note, I read a while back, I think as something I read as opposed to the many times that we've been together in meetings, how your early experiences as an undergraduate at Oberlin College in Ohio after growing up in Washington, D.C., really shaped your subsequent work in understanding and explaining the role that adults play in co-creating the contexts where learning and development happen. Can you kind of recount for us that at least what I took to be a fairly seminal transition in your own personal and professional development that has led to your work on a lot of the other stuff we're going to talk about? I'd be happy to. I have to roll the clock back multiple decades, but I can do it. And I will say, as I start this, it took me about 10 years to realize the significance of these two things that happened, but they definitely did sort of shape the trajectory of my career and my thinking. So the first thing that was, as you alluded to, I'm sitting here in D.C. I grew up in Washington, D.C. I went to the D.C. public schools, single mom because my dad had died, and uh, you know a good working class neighborhood family. And when I went off to Oberlin College, and there are other stories that lead up to this, but when I went off to Oberlin College, people, and frankly, were surprised I was well-prepared. So if you take the demographics of here comes, at that point, a skinny black kid from D.C. who went to the D.C. public schools from a single-parent family, sounds like potential, but it sounds like you're probably going to need some remediation. 
And other than the fact that my school didn't teach calculus, I really was well prepared, um, both academically and socially and emotionally and cognitively for college. Um, and so I had to stop to think about why that was that people were surprised and what it was about my education and my youth development experiences broadly defined that led me to be well prepared where the average young person with my demographics was seen as potential but not prepared. So that's one thing that was sort of noodling in my head. And I went off thinking I was going to be a, a middle grade math teacher. That was my goal. So I'm thinking about this. Then the other thing that happened was when it was time to get a summer job, this guy named David Weikert, who went to Oberlin and was an Oberlin graduate, would show up every spring and recruit uh, students from Oberlin to be camp counselors at what was the high school educational camp for teenagers. I had never been at a camp. I was absolutely a city kid. I didn't know how to swim, but I needed a job and I wanted practice teaching. So I applied and ended up spending my summers being a camp counselor at this incredible, basically community of learning that was set up eight weeks every summer for 60 to 80 kids who were coming from every place from rural Arkansas and the Mississippi Delta to France and Germany where affluent parents were sending their kids in to practice their English and every place in between. And so what I was immersed in was this opportunity to really understand how you build learning community with young people that you don't know until they show up and they don't know each other and they don't know you. And you have eight weeks in which to really see this community come to shape. And, you know, we can sort of go off from there into why developmental relationship is so important because that's where it all started. It had to start with relationship, but it wasn't just about caring. So we can come back and talk about that. But it was the juxtaposition of those two things, of understanding that somehow, without knowing that I was special, I basically had been in learning environment, school environment, and my uh, youth development environment, which for me was the combination of the church and the DC Youth Orchestra were sort of where I went when I wasn't in school. I had shown up well prepared and I didn't feel special. So the phrase that I've used over the years when this sort of hit me was what had happened somehow was that adults had come together to figure out how to change the odds for kids like me. So it wasn't that I was pulled out and someone said, wow, this is a special kid. We're going to help them beat the odds. We're really going to just figure out how we really change the system so that young people can naturally get these experiences that allow them to develop. So I had that happen in my middle and high school years that allowed me to go off well prepared. And then I had this incredible experience of actually learning firsthand from the master, Dave Weikert, what it takes to build those kind of experiences. By the time I had those things together and it was time for me to decide whether I should go off to be a math teacher, I knew that I had to do something other than go teach in public school because public schools weren't doing what I saw was possible. So that really sort of started the trajectory of how do I get these ideas into policy and practice in some bigger way than going off to be a math teacher in which I know I'm always going to be breaking rules.
Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I'm just curious. You said it took maybe 10 years until you sort of had this realization or epiphany of that it was the the cluster of environments in which you developed that had made the difference. Did you ever have the chance to go back to any of those adults at your church or at the youth orchestra or in the DC public schools and actually sort of say, especially as you've become a national expert in it, but whether or not they ever knew that, did you ever have a chance to kind of go back and say, hey, you really set me up, right? Yes, absolutely. I did uh, in, in all of those spaces, especially school. I mean, the, the school experience, I actually went back and tried to figure out why it was so special because D.C. is not known for having exceptional public schools. It turned out that I actually went to school in what was called the Renaissance period for the D.C. public school. Now, my sisters, who are now, one of them isn't with us anymore, are 10 and 12 years older than me. The one who was 12 years older actually went to a completely segregated high school. The one who was 10 years older was in the class that integrated Roosevelt High School. And then by the time I came along 10 years later, I was in this experimental project in which they were using empty or underpopulated schools because they were in neighborhoods and they didn't have enough kids. They were using those to basically run experiments, many of which are still going today, try to reverse white flight. That was the challenge <laughs> that families were leaving the public schools they hired folks to come in and help them figure out what innovative education could look like that would attract white parents back. So starting in fourth grade, which is when I went into the program, fourth grade, I had what would now be called looping. So I stayed with the same kids and the same teachers for fourth through sixth grade. When I went to junior high school, which put me on a bus and took me all the way to the other end of the city, D.C. doesn't have school buses. You just get bus tickets and you take off. 45-minute ride from one end of the city to the other. I went to a junior high school that was using block scheduling. We had project-based learning. You know, we had science labs. We had all kinds of things that were going on. We had yoga. I mean, it was an incredible, you know, girls took shop and boys took cooking. Everything that you could think of was happening. And I'm, you know, I'm talking about the 50s and 60s here. We're not, we're, we're not talking last year. And then when I went to high school, it was the same thing. So I actually went back once I found that out and said, was it really as good as I thought? I pulled out my high school yearbook. I looked all the way through it. With absolutely no exception, every kid in the yearbook had at least two extracurricular activities listed next to them. Mm -hmm. Every club was integrated. It was a very integrated high school. Every club was integrated. The only club that actually wasn't as well integrated, and you would think cheerleading. Nope, wasn't that. It was the Latin club. And it was because our Latin teacher was this incredible African-American guy and wonky kids like me all were just got attracted to him. And we not only took Latin, we joined the Latin club. Why you would join a Latin club now, I have no idea. But it was just an incredible experience. So I affirmed it by looking at it and talking to some of my classmates, but also went back and found a lot of those teachers. And it was amazing. Yeah, got your... Your personal story reminds me of somewhere buried in the very long book, Our Kids by Robert Putnam, is one graph that just jumps out at me, and it's the participation rate of kids over the decades in school-sponsored extracurriculars. And for affluent kids, it just holds constant from about exactly the period you're talking about, 60s. And starting the 70s, for low-income kids, it just plummets for you know, I'm sure many different reasons from changes in transportation to making pay to play, things like that. But it's such a such a powerful additional 
source of youth development that we've disinvested in for a lot of kids living in poverty, at least according to that data, which was pretty striking. Absolutely. And it's one of the things that we have a chance to build back this year. One of the things that we're talking about is the disruption that has come along with COVID creates an opportunity and the funding that's going to come down the pipe will, will help us get there. You got me excited there. Let, let's just let's jump from the beginnings of your career, really uh, based on your personal experience, to the present moment. I was thinking of ending there, but I, you've 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 taken me there earlier than I was thinking, which I which I like. What is this moment in your mind as we are hopefully emerging from this pandemic, as we continue to be in a struggle for racial justice that is ongoing? What does Build Back Better mean to you, and how is it influencing the work that you're doing today? Well, it, it, it means a lot. And I will say here, and I've said in a lot of places, again, over the 50 plus years in which I've been having these thoughts, I'm actually most excited and most optimistic that can make this natural integration between what I would call formal, flexible, and free choice learning opportunities. We can make those visible. We can really maximize young people and families options about how and where they mix and match those. And we can actually, at a system level, really figure out how to resource these directly. And a lot of that has come from the disruption that was COVID, coupled with the racial and equity uh, lessons that are, are now so visible we can't pull back from them. So we know we can't go back. But it really is, for me, the sort of watching over the past year plus understanding of what school means when it's happening well, that school is a community. I mean, when it's done well, school is a lot like that camp that I that I went to. Young people really are a part of a community. It has social significance, it has emotional significance. It is where they are building cognitive skills and using them in a, practicing them in a variety of ways, formal and flexible and free choice. I mean, I was in the library, in the school library, in the public library. You're doing all of these things in a way that if we just think of schooling as where academic transfer happens, which is what we did when we when COVID first hit, it was all about do kids have Chromebooks and can they log in to get their classes? And we had to quickly recognize that that wasn't it. <laughs> that what young people missed first and foremost was the relationships and the routines. <laughs> And those other resources that sort of made school a community, that that's the glue that lets the learning happen. So over the months, as the, the narrative story changed from it's all about internet access and Chromebooks and hotspot to maybe it needs relationships and maybe it really is about routines and maybe young people are missing some of the other resources that sort of come along with school when school is doing well, but we don't fully acknowledge the importance both undergirding and wrapping around. So as that started to become more visible, and it's just fascinating to watch the language if you just read the Washington Post or read articles, it doesn't have to be what people like us write. How this stuff is being interpreted is changing in a way that we have an opportunity to get the balance right. The main challenge that I think we have is not letting the moment be seen as temporary that we have to get the balance right because this was a year of trauma and learning loss. So that we have to do things differently now, but we can go back the way it was before. We really have an opportunity to shift this conversation and I think we can do it. And that's what makes me excited. I have never, 
I've never seen us get as close as I think we are. And Kent, you spent your years inside a school, so you can you can affirm whether you think this or not. But I think there's an absolute willingness. I think the glass is more than half full. And I actually think the responsibility is now on the youth development side for us to sort of meet folks where they are and really figure out what it's going to take to make these transitions. Starting in this conversation with your personal story, but also in your current work, the way that you... I just think beautifully do not pit youth development against educational success is key because that can happen, including unintentionally. You know, sometimes for me at Search Institute in the last decade, I've gotten to know the youth development world much better than I used to. And and yeah, my career was in schools before. And, and sometimes I would be in settings, sort of youth development spaces, and it was always this sort of, well, the educators don't get it. The educators don't get it. And it's it's actually true in many respects, but we do have to have that meeting in the middle and that in your personal story and in what you're saying about kids thriving today, academic progress remains central, but a sort of a drill and kill boot camp reductive approach to learning loss, quote unquote, is not going to get us where we need to go. I think partly also it's going to depend a lot on leadership. It now seems almost impossible to remember, but No Child Left Behind started as a bipartisan effort with Ted Kennedy endorsing it and many civil rights leaders. And when they did that, nobody predicted that it would become this reductive, narrow the curriculum, test-based accountability, but it did. And so to sustain this moment, I, I agree with you, there's the year ahead, and then there's two and three and four years ahead beyond that, that we don't just put our shoulders to the wheel and try and build back better. And then, as you just said, revert to the norm again. Yeah, there's some exciting stuff that has happened. Your point of how we, we can't, and it happens on both sides, we can't let the education and youth development people, and first of all, it's always been you know, sort of crazy making for me that we have those two words seen as not somehow connected, but that we, we, we can't let them be pitted against each other. That came with pushing social-emotional, and then we had to come back and go, no, but it's social-emotional integrated in academic. Well, of course, the things that you've done around development relationships, the things that you've done, because we've been on these panels together, of really sort of wedging and making important development relationships as a key piece of what we have to do to optimize learning and learning development and settings in any sense. So yes, we need those relationships. We need them then to really be sort of to make sure that they're leading the physical and emotional safety. The young people really are feeling that they are safe and belonging. We need those rich instructional practices and knowledge built in, no matter whether it's academic or whatever, whether they're picking or we're picking. We clearly need those supports for young people who need extra supports. Those need to be available. And then where this all started on the school side, we do need to acknowledge, mostly by naming, I think, as opposed to teaching, that those important cognitive and social skills. We need to name skills and make sure young people are practicing those skills. When you put all of that together, and that's, you know, and you've been in these conversations with Ham Cantor and Turnaround and the Sold Alliance, in which that blue wheel has landed on a color. All of those are the non-negotiable for an optimal learning environment, but it really does have to start with relationships. That's the driver. And the thing that has been interesting in both talking to folks in the two systems that we want to call education and development two systems is in education the challenge has been we assume it's about content we assume it's about the rigorous instruction and we underestimate the power of the they're there 
good teachers know they're there. Principals know they're there. But to your point about where no child left behind went sideways, if we don't name it and measure it, then everything gets off. And so as soon as we put an accountability system around it, but we don't have equal ways to account for all of those pieces, and we start over-accounting just around content, then that sort of went whack. On the youth development side, we really always, you look at anybody's, boys and girls clubs, the Y, 4-H, you could look at anybody's theory of change, it starts with relationships. But that's not because they're more enlightened, that's because these are voluntary programs. How do you get kids to come? Well, if you don't make them come, they come because you build relationships. So we lucked into that by being voluntary. We then made a more natural progress around, but we didn't always get all the way around. I can't say that we always really offered up rigorous instructional content. I can't say that we always provided all the supports needed. We can't even say that even though they were natural places for these skills to be building, that the kind of social, emotional, and cognitive skills and competencies were named and optimized. So there's work to happen on both sides. There really are complementary deliveries for all of these things. And if we could get to the point of seeing that they're complementary and getting communities to figure out how to take advantage of the fact that these are complementary systems, we would be a lot better off than the either or approach that Yeah. One of the ways in your work, and there was a recent paper that you and some colleagues did on thriving, robust equity and transformative learning and development that I really loved. There's one idea in there that I think is a very tangible way to, for like a school, a program, a community to begin operationalizing some of this. You talk about elevating the quote, unusual suspects in kids' lives. Can you say a little bit about who the unusual suspects are and what elevating them could mean for this moment? Absolutely. One of the ways that we get to this very quickly is you ask in any room, you ask people to close their eyes. I could ask you all to do this and say, think of a really powerful learning, something that really has stuck with you. And where were you and who were you with and what were you learning? And chances are, because we do that little exercise a lot, that you probably are not going to name a classroom teacher. Those are the unusual suspects. Who were you with when some learning happened that stuck with you? Perhaps you're with a parent. Perhaps you're with an uncle. Perhaps you're with someone in your church. Perhaps you're with someone who was taking the time because they had an interest in car mechanics and you were interested in it. You were with a neighbor who was helping you learn something, but it was that magic combination. There was a relationship. There was something you wanted to learn. There was an adult who was really willing to help you either learn it or help you make meaning of something. And that's the other thing that we underestimate. It isn't always about imparting knowledge. Sometimes it's about helping young people reflect on something that happened to them that they can then make meaning of and can learn from how you did it so that they can understand why it's different. Those are the kind of things that people mention. So those unusual suspects, and we sort of name them when people get to a litany of, oh, there are other people in the community who can support it. We tend to say, oh, the people at the barbershop, the people at the church, and the people at the whatever. They are not that unusual in that they really do make up the rest of young people's lives when they're not in school. There are also unusual suspects in the school building, which also is frustrating that they don't get named. If you're in, uh, you know, I, I had wonderful relationships with my teachers, but I also knew the person in the cafeteria who served me lunch. And I knew who she was and she knew who I was and she would ask about my family. Again, we didn't take buses, but bus drivers, school crossing guard down at the bottom of my street. There's a school crossing guard who has had her job for 22 years. She knows 
every kid. When she doesn't see a kid for a couple of days, she goes and finds out why. Those are unusual suspects. They may not be in the classroom teaching academic content, but they are teaching a lot, and we need to acknowledge the roles that they play. Yeah, and I would imagine that when we do that with intentionality and we help them understand that there's actually science behind what they do, it's got to, I would hope, be an empowering and motivating experience for them. Yeah. So there's a phrase that I usually attribute to you, and I'm not actually sure that you were the first, that you coined it or that you just use it so effectively, but it's this idea that we need to not just help kids beat the odds, we also need to help them and work on their behalf to change the odds. It's pretty clear to me how developmental relationships can help kids beat the odds. They're protective, they give resilience, they give motivation in very difficult circumstances, especially kids who are from historically marginalized communities and who face racism and other forms of oppression. Do you think relationships can help kids change the odds in whatever that means in your formulation of the phrase? And, and if so, what does that look like? Absolutely. And I will take credit for the, for the phrase. I can go back and find the... <laughs> I've been uh, quoting you for like years and I've always been like, oh, I got to ask Karen if that is something. That's great. It's a wonderful way to frame it. I can see people's eyes when I use it go like, oh, because it just helps to, to make it a both and. Yeah. When I said it took me 10 years to fully realize, it actually took me about 10 years to come up with that phrase. Oh, it's great. Even more. But it, it, it was just trying to figure out what was different about that not being the special one, but somehow people had really, really changed the odds. But to your question of can developmental relationships help young people change the odds? Absolutely. Because that's what transformative learning is about. So again, if it isn't, if developmental relationships really are all the things that you say, which are perfect, and I you know, went back and, and sort of even thought through my high school camp experience and said, yes, we did all of those things. So if it's not just, you know, can we, can we express care with people? Of course we can. You know, we did want to challenge their growth. That's great. We provided support. That's great. It's the last two. It's the share power and expand possibilities, which is where I think the transformative comes in. Because the goal is not to, to, to use the relationship to teach young people. The goal is to make sure that you're using the relationship to make sure that young people are building the skills and competencies that they need to use them in a way that lets them transform their lives, analyze critically the systems and settings that they're in, push back if they see something happening that is not optimal in their lives and have the courage to go from individual to collective. That's especially important if we're talking about young people who are a part of any kind of marginalized group. The moment where it's not just about me, which is beating the odds, but it's about, wait a minute, there's 15 of me or there's 500 of me. And if we're all kind of experiencing the same thing, are you going to let us actually make collective meaning of what's wrong so that we can change the odds? That's where, and when you see that happen, and when you see adults who have enough confidence in their relationships with young people and enough confidence that when they, when they really do share power with young people, they're going to expand the possibilities that not just young people move forward, but they actually push the system. That's where this begins to happen. And I think when, when you hear Rob Jagers talk about transformative sort of SEL, I think that's where they're trying to push it. Frankly, for me, it's a hard place to get just from the term SEL because it's been so blocked down in the teaching part, like we're going to teach you these skills. But 
I'm happy to encourage them to keep moving. But where I've seen that happen, it's just amazing. And I got to watch it once. I, you know, whenever I'm in a community and I get to stand at the back of a class, I try to. And I was in Cleveland, I think, watching an eighth grade class in a school that was using the AVID process. And this was a class of all black and brown kids with a white teacher up at the board and you thought, okay, or up at the screen. You thought, all right, this is going to be a boring class because they were looking at what the criteria were for you to sort of pass, they were eighth graders, pass 11th grade, whatever the topic was, writing. Like these are the requirements for you to really be sort of certified at the 11th or 12th grade level. They went, all right, that's an interesting way to start a class. So they were being graded on whether they were doing those things. But the essays that they wrote, they had complete reign over how to write essays and produce those essays and present those essays. And they were asked if it was okay to do it while we were in the back of the room. And three young people had essays on racism in their school. And they stood up in front of people they didn't know, in front of a white teacher, and explained to them how there were microaggressions, how there were things that were going on in the current school or in their previous school, and why they happened to them. So they were both getting sort of assessed on how well they were using grammar and using sentence construction and doing all the things that you were supposed to do, but they were also clearly very powerfully becoming a group of young people who were seeing this is a common problem and we can do something about it. So I think if we went back and found those young people now as 11th graders, they probably have done something. Um, those are the kind of things that we can do. Yeah, I love connecting our own framework that we've developed through our research at Search Institute to that change the odds vector in the way that you just did, that it's the share power and expand possibilities part of our framework that in particular have the potential to be supporters and drivers of the change the odds. The first three, expressing care, challenging growth, and providing support are are also critical, but I love that that way of framing our own framework. Of course, importantly, in almost every setting we've studied, those last two parts of our framework, sharing power and expanding possibilities, happen less often and less intensively for almost all kids in schools, in out-of-school time programs, and actually in families as well, with notable exceptions that always give me a lot of hope, where you'll see somebody's expand possibilities is off the charts, and you say, okay, they're, that's not by accident. They're doing something there to say we're going to introduce kids, or like the example you just gave of the AVID classroom, that's sharing power in a very tangible way. But so since part of your work over the years has also been these these incredibly challenging efforts to sort of for lack of another way to put it, scale stuff, meaning to not have something that happened in one place only happen there. At one point, David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, and I don't remember if this was actually in something he wrote or in an email exchange that I, one of the couple of ones that I've had with him, because he thinks a lot about relationships too. He said, you can't scale relationships. And I'm wondering if you agree with that you know, premise, and, and if so, how we still don't leave this to chance so that it's only the kids in that one avid classroom in Cleveland who are experiencing that kind of relational interaction with teachers. But understanding that these are not like cookie cutter interventions that we can just easily replicate, how do we actually spread this work? I mean, obviously, I think we can scale relationships. So I'm going to disagree with that. I'm sure that on some level, that probably makes sense in that, no, we're not basically teaching immutable practices that, that adults go into any room and say, this is how I do relationships, same way that this is how I teach long division. I mean, no, it doesn't look like that. But we can scale relationships by hiring. I mean, we could, 
we can scale relationships by acknowledging that we want to be able to build on adults' natural tendencies. And they do vary. Their natural tendencies to not only think that the things that you're talking about in development relationships are important, but that they actually have experienced them themselves and that they actually can tell you some examples of where they've been reasonably successful at doing this with them. Now, I can do that in any kind of capacity. I could have been, I did it as a camp counselor, I could do it as a parent, I could do it as the Sunday school teacher or a Saturday school teacher you know, in, my, in, in my church or faith organization, I could do it as a neighbor. But I think the big part of this is that we have to name this thing. I mean, so often we think we have to train people for them, and we do have to train for them, but we need to train based on people's natural experiences and orientation. I keep meaning to go back and find the citation, but when I was on the National Commission for Social Emotional and Academic Development, they gave us a big stack of readings. One of the things was a study that was done of teachers, and it was really done in the spirit of saying, if we look forward to what are the things that help young people be successful in the work, so those you're, you're valuing the skills that we talk about because they are better predictors of success than just academic grades. So they were saying, well, where are there teachers who are focusing on these things versus teachers who are good at teaching content? And they did a study and they found that you basically have two groups. About 40% of the teachers are good at content, but not great on the relationship side. About 40% are good at relationships and fall back on the content. And it was only about 17 or 18% that were right in the middle that did both. So right there, you've got an opportunity. If it's not natural that we know how to do both, that somebody's really good at doing both. Which one are you picking and which one are you training? I think it would be easier if we want to lead with relationships, let's pick the people who are natural skills at relationships and then let's funnel in the content. Right now what we're doing in schools is we're picking the people who are good at content and we're hoping they can do relationships. If the science is telling us to do it the other way, we can recruit differently. And I think you can scale through recruitment. Yeah, that's fascinating. So interesting. I think the other point that you made about the power of language is really interesting. I was out giving a talk once at the National Meeting for Communities in Schools, and it was in Las Vegas, and they had one of their board members give a talk. And I was thinking this is kind of the perfunctory talk by a, a board member who didn't come from the world of education or youth development. But she used a fascinating point about once you name something and you form a connection to it, it can almost magically become visible to you in your life. And the example she used was when you buy a new car. If you buy a red Toyota, then when you're driving around on the street for a certain period, you're going to notice all of the red Toyotas. And it's not because red Toyotas have suddenly become more numerous in the world, but it's because you have made a connection to a red Toyota. And so if once you actually have this, you know, oh, share power is something that is really good for kids and I want to do it or something, that you can find your own ways to share power because you have that sort of awareness of it. I came home and I said that to my wife and she said, oh yeah, it's like when you're pregnant. Suddenly you see every, if you're pregnant, every other woman who's pregnant, you're noticing, which is obviously something I can't relate to at all, but she immediately got this, you know, your world, you make a personal connection to something because you now have an experience in a language and people can find their own solutions for some of these things. They don't necessarily need research organizations to come in and operationalize it fully, but they need organizations like the Forum for Youth Investment and CASEL and Search Institute, hopefully to help frame it and give a language to it. Yeah, we really do underestimate naming. 
I was just having a conversation with the new teacher center. Um, and they were asking sort of big questions of, all right, if we were going to take the lessons that we have learned over the pandemic and and figure out how to, you know, sort of talk about teaching and learning with new teachers, what should we do? And I said, well, could we start by actually really pausing on why we say teaching and learning? Hmm. Why we say it and why we say it in that order? Because it's really not what we know about how learning happens. It doesn't lead with teaching. It really does lead with meaning making. And meaning making is very different from teaching. So I do think that there are ways to scale what we're doing. I do think that developmental relationships are at the crux of all of it uh, because that's what the science tells us. It, it, is, it is relationships and experiences, the engagement that gets you to the learning, whatever that learning is. And the naming part is really, really for kids and for adults. Well, Karen, this has been so fantastic. And I almost can't think of a better point on which to end, though I hate to have it end. But the work that you have done and continue to do has been uh, inspiring and empowering to a lot of us. I'm really excited that in your new role, you're actually, I think, going to have more time to do this kind of thinking and less time doing what I'm sure in your previous job and in my current one is part of running the organization. So yet another way in which you're a model of thinking about the long trajectory of a career. And I appreciate you starting our discussion today with your personal story as well. So thank you again. That was Kent Pickell interviewing Karen Pittman, leader in youth development and current partner at KP Catalyst. I'm Ben Holtberg, CEO of Search Institute. I want to thank you for listening and ask that you review Rooted in Relationships wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews are one of the best ways for others to find out about the show. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back in two weeks with our next episode of Rooted in Relationships. The Rooted in Relationships podcast is made possible by the grants from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation nor the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. For more resources on how to build and strengthen developmental relationships with young people, visit the resource hub on our website, searchinstitute.org.